you might have, you might have grown up with family a little spread out. Uh, I had family, I grew up in Missouri in the Midwest, I grew up in St. Louis, but I had grandparents, my mom's side lived in Florida. And so many summers we would go and we would visit them in Florida. We would, we'd go to the beach. Anybody, you know, go to the beach over the summer growing up? Some of you are from Florida, right? We would go to the parks. We'd go to Disney World, right? It was game on time. We went to the restaurants. We went to, we went to um, uh, the condo. We went to, we went to all the kind of classic Florida things, and we loved it. We drove from Missouri together. You know where we never went? Well, we didn't go to church either. <laughs> you know where we never went? My grandparents' home. For all the years that my grandparents lived in the state of Florida, I never went to their house one time. I know. I didn't grow up knowing anything different. But I literally never with my eyes even saw the outside of their house. That was off limits. Their home was their space and their place. And I didn't know anything different. And so they would rent a condo for us, right? They rented a condominium and we would all stay in the condo. We'd go out to eat. But you know where we never went literally, and I do not exaggerate, not even one time. I never went inside their house. I never even saw it. And some people, when I tell them that story, they're like, that is the weirdest thing I've ever heard. That's so strange. I didn't know anything different, though. Some of you grew up and you had a home and there was like a dining room and you could like go to the edge and look in, but you better not walk into the dining room. Anybody have like a room like that? Some of you, maybe that was a generational thing. Or like your mom or dad had the guest bedroom and you do not play in the guest bedroom. The guest bedroom stays ready and set for guests, but you don't take your your Ninja Turtles or He-Man into that room. No, 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 no. That room is off limits. Off limits. My grandparents' whole house was off limits, right? Some of you had a room that was off limits. Some of you have possessions, right, that, you, you, that are off limits to either a friend or anybody or a, or a thing. Like, you just, no touch. Like, this is where it stays. We've started a series, and it's called Set Apart. And Set Apart is the actual definition of the word holy. To be set apart, to be different. And the, the, the reason I'm taking the, the length of time I am to get into the message today is that unfortunately, the tragic thing for many of us as it pertains to walking in the holiness of God is that we treat it the same way we do grandma and grandpa's dining room, right? Or the guest bedroom. We treat holiness like it's something that is off limits, we're really not allowed to go there, right? It's too far. It's too, the distance is too great. Now, I want you to hear this because God's holiness and the condition of humanity, it has created separation, which is why we can literally look and experience dysfunction and brokenness all over the place. But it's not because God originally created it that way. He designed you and I for relationship with him. 
And it is because of our sin and because of the condition of mankind that things have become the way they've become. But it's not because our God created that room, so to speak, and said, no thanks, right? You're not allowed to come into relationship with me. The only thing that we saw at the beginning in the Garden of Eden was a tree with fruit on it. And that was, in fact, off limits. And God allowed that to be created so that he would be able to create an environment and a culture where you and I were not enslaved to loving him, but that we could choose by our own free will to love him and worship him. And we chose something else. But make no mistake about it. God is set apart But he is not off limits. He desires relationship with you and with me. You guys with me today? Amen. And everybody said, "Mm." everybody said, that's good, right? That's right. God is, in fact, holy. There's none like him. He sits and reigns above all of creation. Now walk with me here, though. Because we're going to expand this idea of holiness and we're going to take that thing off the shelf. This holiness is not this crusty, dusty King James Version Bible that doesn't ever get read and looked at and just kind of collects dust over here. No, 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 no. God has designed you and I to walk in full relationship with him in the calling of his holiness. Look what he did in the beginning. Look what we had. You got Adam and Eve. And the scriptures tell us that humanity is not like the rest of creation. In fact, Adam and Eve in the garden are tasked with with naming the animals. Adam and Eve, it says, they're not like everything else. In fact, when, when God finishes making humanity, he looks at them and he said, man, that is, anybody remember? It wasn't just good, it was very good. As in, better than the rest. In fact, the scriptures say that humanity, of everything that was created, you and I have been made in the image of God. There is only one thing in all of creation that's made in God's image, and that's you and me. In other words, you are made not to be God, but you are made like him in his image. You and I are called to be like him and to be holy. You're set apart above all of creation. You're different with me. Then something else happens. When God makes uh, Adam, he then decides, actually, this isn't like humanity is good, but you know what? It's not good. People being by themselves. So he makes Eve and we have now the first like family. We've got Adam and Eve and we have people. Right? The people of God are being formed and shaped. And then those very people are given work to do. Understand this. I know it's hard to believe. But before sin ravaged the garden, before sin entered the world, you and I, or humanity, had a a job to do. There was work to be done. And it wasn't like this, I got to go to work, you know, kind of thing. No, it was a noble calling. 
And so we see this holy picture now taking place with God's people. Now let's read the actual verses that go along with it. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. The man and his wife, they heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. You know what they had in this moment? They had God's presence in the fullness of it, so much so that God literally, it was like he was walking in the garden with them, just taking a fat stroll. It was nice. The coolness of the day with God. They had his presence. But that's not all. Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea. The birds in the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Not just one, but them. Male and female, he created them. So we have God's presence, and now we have God's people. And then Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And so now we have God's, God's presence with God's people and God's purpose. And now we have a, a, a little bit of a better picture of holiness here because for us, many times, we take this idea of being holy and we reduce it to this little thing of simply acting right, having the right behavior, getting it right. And make no mistake about it, holiness is, in fact, having a life that is right, standing before God. But to simply make it that, to reduce holiness to that one tiny sliver is to actually make being holy way too small. God's holiness is such a gift to us. And it's so much bigger than we oftentimes give it credit for. Your idea of holiness, if it's like mine, is oftentimes too small. So here's how we redefine it today. You're taking notes. Holiness is this. It's God's people experiencing God's presence as they live out God's purpose. God's divine holy calling upon you is that you would experience the fullness of his presence with his people as you live out your purpose that's it. It's not just this one little thing. It's so much bigger than you just getting the right and wrong aspects of living for God down. Although, please get that. We want to be a people who do live right. Now, I love movies. Okay, I'm a movie guy. One of my favorite film franchises is the born identity, right? It's one of those movies, not that I have, I don't have cable anymore, but, but you know, there are certain movies that would come on growing up or, or whatnot that if it came on, oh, just stop. Like this just, the, you know, there's no more channel surfing that happens. The Fugitive was one of those movies in my house where it's like, it's on. It's just gonna stay there now. 
right? It's just there, right? The Bourne movies were that way for me. I can always be watching the Bourne identity. I love it, right? Little Matt Damon. There is, in the very first movie, there is a, there's a theme that starts out in the first movie that's subtle that many times we miss, and it's actually carried through and quoted in nearly all the Bourne movies. See, Jason Bourne is a, if you don't know the, the, the context, I'm not ruining anything. It's also a dated movie, so come on with it. You need to have watched it by now. I don't ruin anything for you. Get, get, get it together, Okay. All right, but Jason Bourne wakes up after, after this large accident and he doesn't remember who he is. He, he, it's like he has amnesia. He, he doesn't know his identity. And, and, and finally, you know, certain pieces start coming back together and he discovers after, you know, he's got like all these like ninja skills basically, right? But, but he is an assassin. Telling you nothing that's revealing uh, the story. Uh, this is beginning like five minutes, okay? He's an assassin. And throughout the movie, other assassins are trying to kill him because he's a part of this program. And, and by him going rogue, it endangers, right, this large program. And so, and so he's fighting with this other assassin. And yes, there's some killing that takes place. And, and he ends up, you know, shooting another guy. And the guy's lying there. And, and Jason Bourne doesn't understand what's even happening. And they're literally in this field one guy is dying, and Jason Bourne, he's, 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 he's in agony because he doesn't even know why people are trying to kill him. He has no idea. He can't even remember who he is. And he's asking questions to this guy who has seconds left in his life. And the guy looks at him, and he says, look what they make you give. Look what they make you give. And then he dies. And you're left with that phrase. And that exact phrase is carried through the entire Bourne franchise. Even so much so that Jason Bourne, you might miss it if you're into the movies, but he repeats it throughout as he's interacting with all the other assassins, right? Who don't even know why they're doing what they're doing. They're just going through the motions of how they've been trained in the world that they have been living in. And this is just what we do. And, and they have kind of these wake-up call moments and the refraining question that keeps being pounded. Yes, subtly, sometimes overt, is look what they make you give. In other words, Look at the price that you have paid for the life that we're living. Like, look at us. Look at us. We're fighting to the, like, we're, we're clawing each other's eyes out. We're, we're, like, this is it? This is the life that we're called to? Look what they make you give. It's haunting. And when we get back to our story of the garden, I want you to hear this. Because for us, again, holiness, it feels like this off-limits thing. And it's actually the greatest gift that God has given his people. Full access to his presence. Walking with God's people. Experiencing his 
purpose. It's such an extraordinary gift. But what sin has done is it has robbed us of God's presence. It has robbed us of what it means to be his people. And it has robbed us of purpose. Look what sin has made you give. Look at what it has cost us. Look how we have been robbed. And yes, I don't want to make it sound like we're just the victims here. Are you a victim? Well, yes, you are. Are you also, you know, complicit? Yes, you are. All of the above. But make no mistake about it. The great deceiver, Satan himself, would have you trade this in and give it up. Look what he is enticing you to give away. In my neighborhood growing up, baseball cards were the rage. And there was always a trade happening on somebody's front porch. My kids, now they don't know that. Right? They don't know trading baseball cards. You know what they did know? Pokemon cards. Oh, Pokemon cards were, I mean, there was wheeling and dealing happening in my neighborhood. Right? Even at school. And I, at times, I would have to talk to them. And I would just say, hey, like, maybe this is just the dad in me who's like, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. We paid good money for those. Is this a good trade? Is this a good deal that's happening here? Right? And I literally would be sitting here and I would be trying to help them understand that there are kids who will swindle their pants off at school. Right? Like, hey, I'll give you five of these for that. And my little ones are like, five cards? For one card? Let's do it. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't understand. The value of that one card is worth like 47 of these. This kid knows his stuff. He's ripping you off. Don't put No. This is a bad trade. Make it, undo it. There were times I did have to undo it, by the way. That's how it goes. There was always somebody who was trying to manipulate a deal. And Satan does that and he does it oh so well. And the thing that we, get, we lose in it is God's presence with God's people experiencing his purpose. And so now, I'm giving you an 18,000 foot picture this morning, by the way. Because in the coming weeks, we're going to begin to drill down real practically on how we now live out his purpose and his presence with his people. But understand something. The Bible, right, in many ways is the recovery mission of those three things. We see from the minute sin enters the garden and these things are disrupted, right? These are the three things that immediately are broken. And look at our own lives still to this day. What is it that's broken? Well, clearly we have broken relationship with God where we feel such distance, where sin has separated us from God. But we also have dysfunction, junction with people. 
When you read the New Testament and you read even the Old Testament, how much labor is given to people literally just learning how to walk with one another and forgive one another and be gracious and merciful and kind. Why? Because what has been broken is the people of God being the people of God. Then there's the purposes of God. We had prayer here Friday night. And you know what's such a common prayer? Is strain over one's vocation. God, what am I supposed to do? What's my next season? I'm dissatisfied with my job. Or I need a breakthrough financially. Right? The, what's, the, what's this? And, and, and vocationally and purpose-wise, God, what am I here for? What have you designed me for? What have you made me to do? I need and want and desire to be fulfilled and satisfied. All of these things, these are purpose-oriented questions. And so what do we see broken throughout all of humanity that God is trying to help us recover by his glorious calling of holiness? It's that you and I would learn what what it means to truly walk in his purposes where you'd feel alive in what God has for you to do that you'd walk in amazing relationship with the community of God and the people around you in your neighborhood and in your small groups and in your in your at work and that you would have a vibrant life filled relationship with God Almighty God is holy, and he has made you to be holy. And the amazing good news of that, by the way, that's not bad news. If you're like, oh, man, holy, and it feels like that off-limits thing, that old, you know, that, 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 the family Bible that sits on the shelf that just collects dust, has no relevance to your life, no, no, no. No, God has made his holiness the greatest gift to you. And it's relational. It's wondrous. It's changing and transformative. Whether you're in middle school, whether you're in high school or college, whether you're married, whether you're single, whether you're going through it, whether you're divorced, whether you're hanging on for dear life, all the things. His calling upon you is to be holy. And that is is amazing news. Now check this out. Exodus 19, 5 through 6. You got God's people. You've got generations now where we're seeing God's recovery mission of His holy calling upon His people. And we have Israel who is being taken out of slavery with Egypt in this moment. Finally, They've been crying out in anguish and, and God is moving and he's moving powerfully on their behalf. But this is what he says. Chapter 19, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, in other words, stay in relationship with me, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. What does that mean? That you would be set apart. 
Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, if you read the book of Peter, Peter's one of the apostles. What does he call you and me? He calls you and I a royal priesthood. Now, we might read that and just think, oh, that's great language. That's good descriptive verbiage. No, he is helping the readers of the New Testament in this moment connect the dots to what God has said back in Exodus here as he's leading Israel out, that that he would make them a kingdom of priests, that he would, in fact, make them a holy nation. Now, you are called to be holy. The Bible also says that you are called to be a kingdom of priests. And what's crazy, because we're tracking with me here, the words that are used with Adam and Eve as they are tilling the soil in the Garden of Eden is the same language used to describe the work of priests in the temple. So in the very beginning... Adam and Eve are designed to be walking out some kind of priestly work and priestly labor. There is a kingdom of priests even before sin has entered the world. And then we have Israel being carried throughout the Old Testament and they're called a kingdom of priests and he's trying to shape them and make them into a holy nation. And then Jesus, he is the fullness of what Israel is unable to do. They're not able to live this calling out. And so Jesus lives out this calling for them. Right? And then he gives the Holy Spirit to the body of believers who have faith. And Peter rises up and he says, You, brothers and sisters, men and women, are a royal priesthood. In other words, you're finally getting to step into the fullness of God's calling that we have been unable to truly experience. You get it all. But what does a priest do? Even in the Old Testament, what on earth does it mean to be a nation of priests? What does a priest do? A priest, their main job is to help reconcile those who don't have relationship with God with God. In other words, they are the ones who are standing in the temple. They're the ones who are helping orchestrate sacrifices so that those who are on the outside can can get on the inside. So those who have distance can be brought near. That's what a kingdom of priests are to do. And so Israel's calling, your calling, the church's calling is to be a people whose life and light draws the nations to God's presence. And this is why throughout the Old Testament and the New, what do we see? We see God's presence being experienced by God's people, with God's people as they live out God's purpose. Well, what is part of this purpose? It's that you and I would be a city on a hill, a light to the nations that people might see the wonder and glorious nature of this God through our lives through the presence of God being experienced, through the love that we have for each other and for the passion of God's work in front of us. And that people would say, my God, he must be real. 
He must be real. How could a God, how, how, can, how can I explain this other than what they're saying must, in fact, be true? At work, in your middle school, how does your life now demonstrate the light of Christ? How are you a priest, so to speak? How are we a kingdom of priests? How do those here at Kennesaw Elementary School, where we have church, how do they encounter and experience the light of God? How? This is now the wrestle that is in front of all of us. How do, God, how do people see God in my life at the gym? How do people see the light of God through me as we're playing basketball or softball? How do people experience the, the light of Jesus and the hope of the gospel in my family and in my neighborhood and on my street? How do people encounter God in this way? I want to walk in the holy calling of God, the fullness of relationship with him, the fullness of relationship with others. And the purposes that God has for me. So one of the things that I've been talking to our leadership team about. Because this word holy oftentimes feels so off limits. And so far away. We, we, we've adjusted it just a little bit. We've been using this word distinct. In other words... This treasured possession, this set apartness nature that God has for you and me in this church. What does it mean for us to live distinct in our community? What does it mean for us to live in contrast to the world around us? Not in anger, right? Not tight-fisted, not, not bullied, not, not protest, protest, and, and this and that. No, what does it mean, though, to graciously live differently, distinctly from the world around us? I'm going to read a few things that I wrote down. Because I believe this is part of God's holy calling upon you and me. One of them is Unity. See, when the gospel gets a hold of you and we become the people that God has or the people that God has destined us to be, you know what a church is to be? It's to be a place where people scratch their heads and they say, how do these people come together? Because the gospel breaks down fear and it breaks down barriers. And now this church, this is not a church filled with people who are just conservative, politically speaking. This is not a conservative church. You know what else this is not? This is not a liberal church. This is not a church filled with liberal politics or conservative politics. This is a church first and foremost built on the rock of Jesus and the light of the gospel. And that means the impossible is done. And people who hold different political values and vote different ways are able to come together and be the church. Why? Because unity is at the top of the list, baby. That's who we are, and that's who we are called to be as God's people. Do you understand this today? Because when the outside world looks right now, what they see is a, is a body of people, culturally speaking, simply divided. 
But what happens when the church comes together and we love through it all? The light of the gospel is seen. See, we are a people of unity. We're a people of true love. This is hard for us to actually know one another like really know one another. To not just be a church where people come and warm up a good seat and then go home. And once a week they see each other for a few minutes. But that we would actually know one another and love one another and know each other's names. And, and actually know enough that's going on in your life that I can be in prayer for you and talk to you and ask you and be with you. And to love one another. This is not Western. We're individualized. But God has called us to be corporate and to be communal. To be people of faith. Where you are praying and you are asking God to do the impossible. Because we serve a God who does the impossible. I'm going to save the others for the messages to come. That way I don't have to, the glaze doesn't happen as sometimes can happen at the end of a sermon. I can feel, I know I'm close. <laughs> I'm knocking on that door. So I'm going to save it for the coming messages in the next several weeks. But I want you to know this. If you, if you hear anything, God is holy. And he has called you and I to be holy. And that is gloriously amazing good news because it means the recovery of God's presence lived out with his people as we fulfill his purposes. And isn't that what we want in almost every scenario that's got you stuck? Isn't it one of those three things? People, God's presence, or something to do with the purpose that God has for you. If you can discover God's holy calling, you're going you're gonna to recover and experience the restoration of these things in your life. Stand to your feet. Father, I thank you in this moment that you've called us to be holy. You've called us to be just like you, like a, like a kid who wants to be like their mom or dad. Lord, where they look at their mom and dad and they're just, they want to do what they do. They want to walk like they walk. They want to do all the things and carry all the things and, and be like their parent. Father, we get that same opportunity and privilege. God, to be holy like our heavenly Father is holy. Lord, would you help us today? Would you help us to walk in the calling of your holiness. Lord, to see it, to see you, not as this far off, distant, off limits presence, God, but, but the one who desires to know us and draw us in to life-changing, transformational relationship. To transform our purpose. To transform us as a people. And to transform our relationship with you and your presence. God, would you do it? Would you help us, Lord? We love and worship you. Amen.